So this morning we we're continuing in Mark. We're going to look at Mark chapter 10, uh, verses 17 through 31. Mark 10, 17 through 31. You can follow along on the screen behind me or on your screen uh, at home, or if you've got it with you, that's great. Uh, before we read it, let's pray together. Oh God, once again, we are grateful uh, to be in this place, to gather together uh, as your church, as your people, as your family, as, as renewed. We're just glad. So thank you for, for giving us this, this opportunity to, to pay attention to you and your presence and to pay attention to your voice. Uh, come Holy Spirit upon us. Open our ears, open our hearts, so that we might hear your voice, so that we could be transformed and look more like Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 17. This may be a story that's familiar, maybe not. Here it is. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. Besides, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Like I've been a really good dude, he's essentially saying. I've followed all the rules. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Oh, I love that line, by the way. One thing you lack, he said, go. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because Mark tells us he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to them, we've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, and with them, persecution. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last in the last first. We'll go that far. 
Let me read that last line again. The many who are first will be last, and the last first. So, as we've been sort of swimming in the waters of the story that Mark tells about Jesus, maybe you've noticed that there are certain themes and ideas that sort of uh, keep repeated. He's repeating these things, right? If you remember from last week, Jesus said this, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. So there are certain ideas and themes that just keep coming up. And when they do, we sort of get a, a, a different angle on them, a new way of looking at them. And these ideas just become a little bit more rich and a little bit more full. And we can understand a little bit more how they uh, sort of might apply to our lives and maybe even change us, maybe even transform us if we're willing. Now, I think what's interesting about this story is actually the story that it comes after. Uh, and I'm going to read that story for you in a little bit, because I think the way that these, these gospel writers tell their stories, uh, oftentimes we want to just pick one up and talk about it, which is what we do. Uh, but oftentimes there's, a, there's an art to it. So one story will sort of shed light on or illumine things in the other story and sort of give us a way to understand it. So what I'm going to do is I'm first going to read the story that comes before this one. And we'll remember some things. We'll put on our thinking caps and remember some things from last week. Uh, and I think that will shed light on how we are supposed to sort of maybe understand this story that we just read. So here it is. Here's the story really quickly. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. I love it. But the disciples said no. The disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was like, nah, man. No, that's not what it says. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant, which is another way of translating. You could translate it, nah, man. Uh-uh. He said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. That's the story that comes directly before this one. The kingdom of God belongs to children. Now we're going to remember, I know it's hard, but we talked about this a little bit last week. <laughs> so I'm going to remind you of what we talked about. So in that world... Children were considered non-persons. They were the bottom of the social ladder, right? They were below women. The only slaves were lower. So they had, they had nothing. They owned nothing. Much like our own children today. Much like children in this world today. They had no material wealth whatsoever. But what did they have? They had moms and dads and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. They had grandparents they had people of faith who shared their same faith. They had neighbors and friends, right? They didn't have any material wealth whatsoever, but what did they have? They had what we might, what we might think of as they had relational wealth, right? And they, much like our own kids today, any child today, 
has to just give themselves to those relationships. They don't have a choice. They had to be totally dependent on those relationships in order to live, in order to thrive, right? And I think that gives us a clue. So they have nothing. And the only thing that allows them to live and to thrive is to just throw themselves into the relationships around them. Again, much like our own kids today. And I think that reality sort of gives us a, a way for understanding, a way to understand this story. Because a man comes up to Jesus, he has everything. He says he has great wealth. So let's get into it. At this point in the story of Jesus that Mark is telling, Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem, and we know what happens in Jerusalem, right? Are we all clear on what happens when Jesus gets to Jerusalem towards the end of the stories that these gospel writers are trying to tell? Jerusalem is the place where Jesus would give of himself as fully as anyone could give on the cross. And maybe he was thinking about what was going to take place in Jerusalem when Mark tells us a man came up to him, a young man with great wealth. He runs up to Jesus, he falls on his knees, and he asks a question, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Oh, that's a loaded couple of words right there. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Sounds really good, right? Eternal life, to live eternally, to live forever. Most of the time, that's just where our minds go when we hear the words eternal life, to live forever, right? Life after death. But that little phrase is so loaded and it's so much bigger than just life after death. So whenever we see that phrase in the Bible, whenever we hear Jesus talking about eternal life, it also means life here, now, in the present. Because eternal life begins now, today, and every other day, you lift your head up off your pillow and put your feet on the ground and start walking around in this world. It starts now. Eternal life, we can think about it like this. Eternal life is life lived fully, passionately, a life of great meaning, and significance here now in the present it is a life that is lived with no fear of death it is life lived with the confidence that death will eventually be overcome and conquered for you it is the life lived the way god intends life to be lived jesus once put it this way he said i have come that you may have life and have it abundantly so that's eternal life. That's what we're talking about here. That's what this guy, this guy wasn't coming to Jesus and saying, hey, Jesus, how, how can I live forever? That's not what he was talking about. That's not what he was getting at. When he came to Jesus, he's asking this question, what must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to live life fully, passionately, a life full of meaning right here, right now? That's what he's after. That's what he wants. And so he asked the question, what must I do to get that? We want to know too, don't we? We want to live life fully, passionately. We want to live a life full of meaning and significance. We want it all to mean something, right? And then the, the answer that Jesus gives is, 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 is sort of interesting. 
maybe even a little bit shocking, especially to this guy who's told that you can earn this kind of life by following the rules and traditions. But the answer Jesus gives is different. He says, this, life, this is a life you can't earn. It's not about earning at all. Right? That would be like squeezing a camel through the eye of a needle. Jesus goes on to say, but not, it's not impossible with God. All things are possible. In other words, this is the kind of life that is pure gift. It's grace. It's given to you. You can't earn it, but there are certain things that we can do to just live into this life that's freely given to us and available to us anytime we want to live into it and receive it from God in the here and now. There are some things we can actually do to live life fully, passionately, lives full of meaning and significance here and now. And Jesus suggests that if we're going to enjoy that kind of life, right, in the here and now, it takes a radical reorientation in the way that we live our lives. It takes a, a radical reorientation towards loving our neighbors, and it takes a, a radical reorientation away from our wealth, away from all of the stuff in our lives, away from the power that comes with it, the privilege that comes with it, right? So, first, Jesus, Jesus tries to radically reorient him towards loving his neighbor by doing things that pastors do all the time. We go to the Bible, right? And so what he does is he goes and he quotes the last six commandments of the Ten Commandments. All of these commandments are the ones that sort of help us understand how do we live with one another? How do we love our neighbor? And so he quotes it. He says, do you know the commandments? You know what the Bible says. You know what the scriptures say. It says, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud or covet. Honor your father and your mother. And the guy looks at Jesus and he's like, I've done that. I've followed all the rules. I've made sure. I've lived my life according to the letter of the law. I've done this since I was a kid. So Jesus looks at him with love, probably just sort of admiring his efforts, like, okay. But he also senses that there might be something else that's sort of getting in the way. Helping him, or stopping him from understanding what it is that Jesus is really getting at. So he then, he then turns to radically reorient this man away from his wealth, away from the power and the privilege that comes with that. One thing you lack, he says, go, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor. Everything? Friends, Mark tells us for a reason that the man is wealthy. It's got everything that, that, that comes with that. Right? But the real, state, the real thing at stake here isn't the man's wealth or our own wealth for that matter. Like wealth is neither good or bad, it just is. The real issue at stake here is the man's relationship with his wealth, our relationship with our wealth, with our stuff. Like, in a sense, what Jesus is saying to this man is, look, you're not getting it because your wealth is in the way. It complicates things. 
It's cluttering up your life to the point where you can't even understand what I'm saying. So get rid of it. Don't let it own you. Reorient your life. Simplify your life. Okay, so let's think about this a little bit deeper. Let's put it into our own context. Let's think about our own lives. Look, we live in a great place, don't we? We live in a really great place. You know, some would say this is one of the greatest places on earth to live. Suburban America, central Iowa, Ames, the surrounding communities, Ankeny and Johnston and Urbandale and others, you know, Slater and Huxley and Nevada and Boone. This is a wonderful place. Right? We live in beautiful neighborhoods. Guess what? It's going to be spring soon. I promise. And pretty soon, the grass is going to start growing. Oh, can you wait? Can you not wait for that? And we're going to see these big, beautiful lawns leading up to relatively large houses, houses full of stuff. And some of these houses attached to them are one, two, three-car garages filled with one, two, three-cars and vehicles, among other things. I mean, compared to the rest of the world, we're super wealthy. I mean, we live stuff-filled lives. And what happens when we lead these kinds of lives that we lead? This is the water, again, in which we swim. It's just reality, right? Well, we become responsible for all that stuff, right? We're responsible to take care of that stuff, to maintain that stuff, to keep that stuff clean, to keep it running properly, to keep that stuff looking good. Like, even graduate students, right? You have a dream one day, right? You're going to get a good job, you're going to buy a house, and you're going to fill it with all kinds of stuff. Like, that's the dream. You're going to fill it with, that's what, that's what we're given. That's what you do. It's the American dream. But here's, here's what happens. We end up spending more time taking care of our stuff than taking care of people. That happens. In reality, most of us are more responsible for stuff than for people. Our relationship with our stuff can clutter things up and get in the way of taking care of our relationships with those around us. Think about how much time you just spent taking care of your stuff. How much energy it takes to maintain your stuff. I think that's part of the point, what Jesus is saying here. Right? Wealth clutters things up, makes us miss what's makes us miss what's really important. Loving our neighbors. The guy asked Jesus how to live life fully, passionately, a life full of meaning and significance right here, right now. That's what he wants. And Jesus says, radically reorient your life toward loving your neighbor. But if we're going to make that radical reorientation of loving our neighbors, it takes a radical reorientation away from our stuff. Notice what Jesus says. He's not trying to get the guy to just get rid of his wealth just to get rid of his wealth. He says what? Do what with it? Sell all your stuff. Go, sell everything you have and do what with it? Give to the poor. In other words, love your neighbor with your stuff. Your stuff ought to be helping you love your neighbor. Give to those who need it. 
Give to those who need to survive. Give to those who need it to live. Let go of your wealth again to gain true wealth. Love somebody. And look, Jesus is pointing to a reality that still exists today. It just does. There is injustice and inequality and inequality in the world right now. And those who enjoy justice and equality are largely blind to those. We're blind to injustice and inequality. There are rich people and there are poor people. There are people who have access to the right social systems, and there are people who do not. There are children who have access to the proper education, good education, and there are children who do not. There are people who are well-connected, and there are people who aren't connected at all. There are people who have, and there are people who have not. And those who have, by virtue of having a lot, are largely blind to those who have none. I think about this in terms of my own life. I mean, I'm the center of our culture. I am the picture of the center of our culture. I am a, a white, straight, middle-class male. I, I, my life is as comfortable as it can possibly be. And if I'm not careful, because I'm so comfortable, because I'm right in the center of our culture, it can make me blind to the needs of other people. And when I become aware of the needs of other people, it can feel like a threat to me instead of a, oh my goodness, how can I change the world so that someone else can get what they need? It can feel like a threat to me, right? That's why the man went away sad, because he had great wealth and everything that came with it. Jesus is like, you want to live fully and passionately, a life full of meaning? So dig down into the innermost, the deepest parts of your soul, and give deeply of those parts. Love somebody who desperately needs it, who desperately needs your love. It makes sense, too. I mean, that's what Jesus did. He's going to Jerusalem, where he would literally give his entire life for the sake of the world. Jim Wallace, who wrote lots of books, um, tells a story about a middle-aged woman he met one day. He was at a book signing to promote his book, God's Politics. And while he was signing this woman's book, she told him how her daughter was graduating from Harvard. And he he thought that she was just sort of trying to create a connection there because she knew that he had done some teaching at Harvard, right? And so he told her with a smile that Harvard's a great school and that she should be very proud of her daughter. But then she looked him in the eyes and said this, I was a low-income mom at the time. And if I hadn't got food stamps and health care, I would have aborted to that child. And now she's graduating from Harvard. I want you to tell people that if they want to prevent abortions, they need to support low-income women like me. Oh, she gets it, right? She sees it. 
She felt it. She received it. She knows what happens when a whole community full of people radically reorients itself and supports policies and laws that help people who need it. Her child, who she would have had to abort, or she would have been forced, she wanted to make that decision, but didn't want to make that decision. But since that was there for her, she got what she needed, and her daughter was born, grew up, lived a life, and graduated from Harvard. How many of us can say we graduated from an Ivy League school? She gets it. Friends, by virtue of our riches, by virtue of living in suburban America, Ames, Iowa, surrounding communities, how many opportunities to help make that kind of transformation are we missing? How many of those are we missing? How many people in this very city do we just not see because of our wealth? And for people like me, because I'm literally the center of our culture, how many people do I miss seeing just by virtue of all the stuff that I have? Those are questions that are worth asking. Those are deep, tough, hard, feel sometimes like threatening questions. But Jesus is like, man, you want to really live life? You want to really live life? Don't let all that stuff get in the way. You want to live a life full of meaning? Look around yourself. Live into those relationships. Have you ever heard of a come to Jesus moment? Anyone ever heard, well, that's a come to Jesus moment? It's that moment, many, some people have them more than others. But it's that moment in a person's life when sort of everything's out on the table, right? You see yourself for who you really are, right? And it sort of drops you to your knees and you're like in a place where you're like, oh my goodness. You start asking all kinds of questions. Questions like, what am I really doing with my life? Like, what does it really mean? And if you're a Jesus follower, sometimes you'll ask the question, am I really following Jesus? If I am, how closely am I following Jesus? Am, am, I, am I living the kind of life that God really wants me to live? Is my life really as full as God intends it to be? And the young man in this story had his come to Jesus moment, literally coming to Jesus, falling on his knees. And Jesus looks at him squarely in the eyes and says, come. He says, follow me. He says, come, follow me. Let's be a part of this movement that will transform the world. Come, follow me. Let's change some lives together. Turn from whatever way it is you're walking right now and follow me. That's radical reorientation right there. And you know, the more I think about those words, the less I hear them as an invitation. And the more I hear them as a challenge. But, but here's the deal. The choice is still ours. So it's an invitational challenge, we might say. Because Jesus isn't going to force it. That's not the way Jesus works. Will we follow? Will we make a radical reorientation in our lives? The radical reorientation where the first decide they're going to be last. For the sake of Jesus, 
for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of the most vulnerable people in the world. And Jesus said it, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Come, follow me. Will we do it? Will we follow? Good question. Let's pray.